Disclaimer, the hosts of this podcast, Timothy Patrick and Will Foley, are by no means medical professionals. However, having lived experience with mental illness themselves, they have gained useful perspectives on common mental health issues that some of us struggle to overcome on a daily basis. By sharing their stories, they hope to create connection. By creating connection, they hope to help you find your purpose. And through purpose, we can all begin to build the foundation for positive mental health. This is Above Ground Podcast. Are you ready to lace up your boots, throw up your horns, and jump into the pit? Then let's stomp the stigmas of mental illness. It's time for Above Ground Podcast. Now, Will Foley and Timothy Patrick. First, I wanted to talk to you about our good friends, Dan and Natalie at Close Knit Company. That's right. It's May. You know what May means? It's t-shirt weather. That's right. T-shirt weather. They got all sorts of cool designs to strap you in, man. So go check them out at closeknitco.com. Make sure you tell them you heard it here on Above Ground Podcast. And while you're over there checking out their awesome designs for the summertime and checking out some tequila t-shirts because they got lots of them floating around, I see. Uh, uh, You can check out Collabex and pick yourself up an Above Ground Podcast t-shirt or hoodie because uh, that's how we keep this show rolling people t-shirts and we all love t-shirts hey what is up everyone welcome to above ground podcast above ground podcast because you can't serve below you know who that is you know yeah you know me What's up, Timmy? How are we doing this week, buddy? Um, we're doing. We're doing a little overwhelmed, a little, little uh, irritable, but uh, yeah, you know, w- one foot in front of the other, brother. I hear you, man. Yeah, I'm a little bit irritable too, man. A lot of stuff going on. Just, just it's been, it's been one hell of a year, and needless to say, and just the last like four months has been insane too. So, yeah, it is what it is, but. We are on Zoom, which means we are here for another interview, and I'm very happy to have our guest this morning. Uh, our guest this morning is Jamie Fabroa. Jamie, how are you? I am doing well, and that's not the uh, well, and I'm putting quotation marks up in the air. It is actually doing well, because every now and then we hear, I'm doing well as a formality as a usual thing to say an expected thing to say but i genuinely can say i'm doing well <laughs> that's awesome Perfect. that's yeah, what that's we awesome. like to hear yeah and you actually you actually saved will from that spiel because he would have asked you how are you really doing because <laughs> so i did some research as well guys <laughs> i knew that that was something that you would tap into and i thought you know what i'm just gonna throw something in there throw a wrench in the gears and make sure yeah. I get it out there excellent <laughs> I've done a little homework. I, I, as much, I, as much as I could find, like I listened to your podcast with your cousin, Dr. Raj. I did not listen to the second part. I did listen to the first part. And then I heard, like, I'm interested in, like, I loved how you came at it with the facts versus, you know, the facts versus myths thing. So we're going to get into that, but, but why don't you tell our listeners who you are, and a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into, you know, we'll get into a real conversation. 
Okay, great. So um, I'm Jamie Fabroa from Toronto, Canada. Uh, so you might hear a little bit of accent of people say I do have a little something and when I say about or something like that. Yes. I mean, <laughs> hey, like, I don't notice it. If you do, if it bothers you, let me just get that out of the way, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I uh, speak of suicide awareness and prevention and not from a scientific background or anything like that, but through experience. And that is through my father um, taking his life back in 2010. Um, this was four days before my 25th birthday. Um, and soon after that, I experienced my own uh, suicidal ideation and thoughts and actually, actually had attempts um, and that really took a toll on my family myself and it changed everything um, as one could imagine and it really took me to the place where I was at my lowest low and from there is when I really um, got the courage to understand that my father did what he did and it had nothing to do with me. And I didn't carry any more guilt or resentment or anger. Um, and I just woke up knowing that if my father left this world and gave me my purpose in life, which was to share this and share um, what I've been through to create awareness, then that is the gift, biggest gift that I could ever receive from him because it now gave me a reason to truly live and live for others in the service of others um, to make sure that I share that so that others can uh, break the stigma of what it's like to um, speak about suicide even, about suicide and your feelings towards it, um, your ideas about it, even in action could prevent such a thing. So um, that's where I stand now. And, you know, the classic question that people have asked others, you know, who are you or tell me about yourself? You know, people tend to go to their resume and say, I was this and I was a banker and I was that. But I tend to go to, well, now more than ever, that I am a stand for suicide awareness and prevention. That is exactly who I am. And I know that and standing with two feet, standing tall about it. Right. So that's who I am. <laughs> that's awesome. And we are so, so proud and, and grateful to have you on um, real quick. I just that like that whole line when you had said, um, you know, that was the greatest gift that he had given you. It was that just gave me chills like that uh -huh. perception. That perception is just phenomenal. So kudos to you for that. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It took a while to get here, but I can sure. see it now. And it's like my heart palpitates with, with joy because it's, it's, truly, it's truly a gift. It truly is. Yeah. How old was your father? 49. So young. <laughs> wow. He's, I'm going to be 49 in a couple of weeks. Wow. And yeah. it's... Um, yeah, and I can. I, I, Tim and I have both had our own experiences, mm -hmm. and we kind of come at this whole thing from from that 
suicidal ideation perspective. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I, after I got through my own personal crisis, that's how I kind of found, even though mental illness has been part of my entire life, like my entire life has been affected by it because my mother has been sick since I was a small child. So I, I'm not, so it's not like it wasn't anything that I didn't know about. It was just something that I just didn't want to deal with. But I will say this, that my, my thoughts my, my opinions about suicide itself have changed since my 20s. And it's kind of weird how when you're young, you think, oh, I've never do such a thing or, you know, it can never get that bad. And yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand it. It doesn't become an option until it becomes an option. And, and that's a that's a really like and even the, the staunchest of people who say, oh, my God, it's not, you know, that's not that's never an option. Uh, well, it is when it becomes an option to you. A hundred percent. And it, uh, I guess a lot of people uh, who have not even gone down that road for the thought of suicide. Um, like you said, that will about you having a view of suicide in your 20s versus now um, in your 40s, um, looking back at your 20 year old self, I don't know if you can relate fully, but even when I look back on it, I thought of it as why would someone do that? Why would it be so bad, like you said, that they want to take their life and it's, it's stupid. It's ridiculous. Like you throw out all these judgments that are in a negative context and then you get there. Um, and then, like you said, it is an option and then it becomes a forefront option and then it becomes the only option and you can't get out of it. Um, and you know, you can't get out of it because the only thing you think about is, the option of ending your life because you think that that is the only place to go to to turn to because of what you dealt with and then all of a sudden your thoughts flutter and come back to well I thought that was a stupid idea and then it goes back to well I'm not going to tell anyone because if I thought it was stupid back then and I'm thinking that I want to take my life and I'm thinking this way now, well, why should I tell anyone? Because everyone else will think I'm stupid. Everyone else will think it's dumb. Um, so I think it's important that even sharing that, like what you just shared, Will, was great because um, you said that your mother and how that affected you and your day-to-day -day and growing up and mental illness being in the forefront and what that paved for you. And you didn't know you would get to where you got but also at the same time you started talking about it and that broke the curse I want to say curse loosely because people speak about generational curses and how that flows into your um, you know your mother was this way your mother's mother was this way and so on and so forth right but it only takes one that's right <laughs> out of that generation and it's speaking about it yeah so and that's and that's kind of where this that's kind of where that attitude came from actually it, it, it kind of the the insight kind of came to me like during my my crisis in 13 where when I was able to pull myself 
far enough from it a year or two down the road. I was in like 2015 is when I started to figure out like where I was going to take all this to because 2015 I had, I wasn't even thinking about like AFSP. I wasn't thinking about like what I was going to do with it. I just knew that because, and that this is kind of where Tim and I kind of came together again, because Tim and I have been friends for a long time, but uh, we weren't really, we hadn't really spoken in a few years and stuff. And uh, we ran into each other in the whole foods and we kind of, you know, we didn't know what either one of us was going to say to one another. And we ran into each other into the aisle, literally right. Like almost run into each other in the aisle. And uh, we, we had some conversations and I, and, and I had already, you know, I had known Tim's a part of Tim's past because I had been involved in it. And um, when we finally came together and started to put the idea of this podcast together, that uh, you, you get far enough removed from a situation and you realize, and I, I look at it this way, that I have a mandate put on my birth certificate now that I have to help someone. And it, it doesn't matter if it's one person or whatever, as long as my words find somebody's ears that may change yeah. mind. And that's, and that's really where all this kind of stems from. Yeah. Which is great because you're, you're being self-expressed, both of you in doing this and sharing this and you're, you're giving a space for others to be self-expressed through your podcasts, which is great because it creates a ripple effect and having other people talk and even the listeners that you have, um, there may be a point in time where they've been dealing with something that they, they're not able to share um, at the moment. And then through your podcasts, you're doing that, like you're, you're doing that and you're helping so many people. Um, so I commend both of you. Uh, I remember reaching out to, to you both because I saw what you were up to. Um, and it's, it's great because it's, I, I haven't seen, uh, men that are fully being self-expressed while, having others share a platform for them to be self-expressed about mental illness. I, I haven't seen it yet. So I commend you both for that because it's um, truly, truly something that touches my heart because I know that if, for example, my father heard such a thing, you know, would it be different? I, I'm not dwelling on it, but it's more so like, if my father was able to have that resource what other male over the ages of 30 plus, which by the way, I want to add in there is the number one leading in suicide. I, I want to make sure that that's said, I, I know that that's something to bring up later on even, but it is the number one um, group of people that take their life. It's males over the age of 40. Um, so, I was, I was just so elated when I saw that was there, uh, that's available. And I reached out right away because I, I knew I wanted to get involved somehow because you are truly making a great impact um, on a demographic that isn't really reached out to. So uh, I really, really am really happy <laughs> that this is, this is now coming and we're together on this and speaking about it, but also you guys have found this in both of you and, and sharing that and you're continuing on. So I, I think it's just amazing, amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for the kind words for sure. 
appreciate it. Yeah. You have a, you ha- you have a lifelong um, invitation to come on whenever oh, you, you want. That's awesome. I would love that. And probably to come out to Albany too. I think I, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, well, we I got to get to Toronto. I'm a hockey fan. I've never been oh. to the hockey. I've never been to the Hockey Hall of Fame, so. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll go take a trip down there. <laughs> Have, um, let me ask you a question quick. Um, actually, the two kind of questions in one. But um, the first part, uh, had, did you ever experience um, any, I guess we'll call them symptoms, before the um, tragic incident with your father? And did your father... Um, have you know outward was there any kind of conversations about you know his his life his symptoms you know beforehand so um my father was born with um rheumatoid arthritis so arthritis within the whole body my father had even arthritis in the eyes Um, and he was just waking up every day with pain. Um, and I knew him to be in his thirties in a wheelchair, crutches sometimes, not being able to get out of bed. Um, and I remember him sharing with me that he knew he had something wrong with his body when he was about 10 years old, he couldn't move his feet. Uh, his joints were just swollen. So as far as he knew, he was born with it. Now that physical pain transpired somehow emotionally, like we spoke about before where there is a correlation between emotional manifesting to physical, his was physical and ma- manifesting to emotional. Now, I can't diagnose it, nor has anyone diagnosed him with mental illness. But just like all of us can imagine, if you wake up every day with pain, excruciating pain, what does that do to your mental health? And I remember even there are times where he would have conversations with my mother when I'd be around about how he was better off if he wasn't around. And that was the language. And I, as a young child, didn't know what that meant even. I thought it was just him leaving, like physically leaving um, the house or physically leaving my the marriage with my mother. But it was more than that and I didn't know. And there was also an incident where my father uh, would crawl into bed with me at night and just cry. And I, I had no idea why he would be crying. And he would tell me that his pain was so unbearable and ask me to ask my mother um, if she could leave him. Now, I didn't know it at the time. I thought, you know, what the heck are you talking about? Um, but it was my father's sign or, or symptom of, I want to end this. So I want her to leave me so that I don't have to deal with this 
uh, I guess, burden of the responsibility of taking care of my wife and my two daughters. And I think that if we speak on um, a bit about how a man should be, and I say that with quotations, right? My father's uh, upbringing was very born into a world of you're a breadwinner as a man, you bring home money, your wife is at home and she's able to do the household chores, cook, clean, take care of the kids. And it is an equal relationship. And I think for my father, he just felt less of a man because he wasn't able to physically uh, perform well at work. He was a mechanic, he was studying to be an electrician, he was doing all these things and physically he wasn't able to keep up. So that took a toll and that I would say was a symptom because it was a symptom of showing that he followed these stigmas and stereotypes and none of his is his fault. He was just born into it. And then that led him to um, obviously take his life. But there was these signs that I, as a child, didn't know of. Like, I mean, as a, as a young girl, I didn't know that that's how quote unquote, a man should be like, right? So, um, when we talk about stigma, and I know that stigma is a big thing for both of you to break barriers and break walls about that, which I think is great. But that is one of those things that my father felt trapped into. And I, and I, I can't relate as a, as a female, um, but I can relate in the sense of, well, that's what my father thought he should have been like. And because it was a debilitating illness for him, he couldn't live up to that. So therefore he felt like he wasn't worthy of living because it wasn't something he could live up to at all. But the truth is no man can live up to that because it is a crazy stereotype, stereotypical things that we've said and set up for men. Like even in our language, when we say man up, what does that even mean? I, what, I, what does that mean? You know, I, I'm not sure. yet. <laughs> Cause I actually, it's funny because I, I like, and, and, and I deal with this myself because, you know, you get, you get doubtful of yourself and everything else. So when, when you think about the things that men should do, I can't do most of those. I can't fix most of the things in my house. I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty terrible at that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm good at talking, but that's not generally, you know, something that, you know, is, is, is frowned, is, is, is looked upon as a masculine thing. Yeah. But I, but I can understand where his, feeling of not being able to live up to his own standard because, and is it really his own standard or was it a standard that he was, that was driven into his mind over the years because of that? Mm -hmm. And, and, but even on your own personal self, we can put so many standards on ourselves to try to live up to that, like you just can't live up to them. And I, I've been, I've been struggling with that myself in, in, in the recent months, just because, yeah. you know, you, you doubt, it's easy to doubt yourself. I'm very good at calling out the bad qualities of myself. I, it's hard to see the good qualities sometimes. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's not forget the, the, the time, you know, the time that he was, that he was a child, you know, that, that period, you know, growing up in that, you know, era it was different it was more of that pressure like you said that this is you know the the standard of a man kind of yeah. thing you yeah. know 
I would like to think that that it's uh, improved, but um, I don't know. I I still see uh, I still see like memes and stuff that is like you know if you if you have a beard and and if you you know and then and then abs and stuff, but you can't change a tire, you're not a man. I'm like, well, I I guess I'm not a man because I don't have any of those things. So I'm <laughs> right. I, I'm yeah. far from a man, I guess. It's all right. Whatever. Yeah. I think that's also why that when you asked about if there were, are, were any symptoms, uh, one can go to, you know, mm, there were symptoms of depression or symptoms of uh, mental illness. But when you said that, I wanted to make sure that it is a symptom as well to give in to um thinking that you stereotypically need to be something that somebody told you to be. And that is a symptom. That yes. 100% is a symptom. And that's why I'm glad you posed it in that way and questioned it in that way, because truly my father was under the symptom of thinking that there was supposed to be a way that he had to be. And then therefore that created a, an effect on him mentally. I got I got to say a word. I got to say a word to Will. Yeah. Autonomy autonomy there it is well uh, yeah I, I okay there it is I, there it is I, I, i'll, I'll, I'll is. give i'll give you that one for number two or three but you gotta look <laughs> up you actually have to look up the definition of autonomy that's all i'm saying but I, it is I, it is part of it that is part of it that's it's definitely part to have of it autonomy sure. if you don't feel like you can have autonomy <laughs> and and paint and you know let's not leave out the pain factor, as you said, that is, you know, I don't know the statistics on it, but it's, it's definitely up there. You know, when you live with that kind of pain every day, it's gonna, it's gonna either force you into depression or force you even further, you know, down that hole. So. hundred percent. And then there's also like, you know, what keeps you going in that is there is treatment, there is new medicine, there's, there's all these things that come up that you're like, okay, I'm willing to try. I'm willing to try. And that obviously could take a toll as well, because if you're expected to try all these new drugs, take these new things and they don't work, you know, you're going through the ebbs and flows of it. And it's just that mentally is distressing, right? Where sure. um, there's a whole bunch of medication that wasn't covered by insurance or what have you. And that we were, you know, dishing out money because it was just like, okay, let's let's try, let's try, let's try. But it, it's it's merely that trying, and then if it wasn't successful, which it wasn't, um, I think the last the last tail end of his medication that he took was in many ways. But was it enough? No, because there was still mental scarring that he had, right? So, um, yeah, and I'm I'm glad you said that because the, these are symptoms that people don't diagnosis symptoms and right and and just going through that process it's very like as you said just trying things is actually trying on the body it's creating more stress more anxiety yeah. which is which in return is probably uh you know heightening the symptoms yeah. so it's yeah. like a it's it's just a it's a it's a compounded thing you know and i also think that just the pain pain alone is enough to make anyone start to question whether or not they want to keep going. 
and especially for the pain that he was in. I mean, having rheumatoid arthritis at that, like finding out early on, like that's not a general thing that happens to everyone. So, so he had, he had a lot of stuff going on before he even, before he even was fully, um, developed in the brain enough to understand what was going on. I mean, if he's not feeling as, you know, if he can't move his feet at 10 years old, what does that do to your brain as you're developing? So it's like, and we, we forget that a lot of that developing stuff, we kind of put it off because as, as children, we have to like, and now I know for me, like I had to grow up very, very, very early, just like your dad probably did. Yeah. because he had, he had all those problems. So you tend to not know how to be an adult, but yet you have to act like one Yeah, and you kind of, and, 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 and in a way. So it, it really does like mess with the developing brain. And yeah. that's not scientific. I think that's pretty proof positive as we see a lot of the things that, you know, have happened to, to children and what happens later on down the road. Yeah, that and that kind of gets us to the next point, because I, I know that you I, I've listened to your conversation with your cousin. Uh, I'll give your cousin a little plug. Dr. Raj, is that? Yes, yes, yes. And he has a podcast, but I listened to uh, and I, I just loved because uh, you kind of got to the very first myth about suicide as we were talking about it. is this that why don't we talk a little bit about the facts versus myths? And, and how you came to this. Cause I know, um, I know you're sister train, assist train, assist train and safe talk trained. Yeah. Um, and, and the facts versus myths. A lot of people think that, you know, a lot, a lot of people have some misconceptions about what's really, uh, what's really at play in people's. Yeah, totally. I think, um, when we had a conversation earlier on in the beginning of this, uh, we spoke about how um, the ideas of suicide that you had once upon a time at the age of 20 and then versus 20 years later and what you think about suicide. And, and I think a lot of these facts and myths stay with people uh, from early on uh, even nowadays, you could say that there are some people who haven't tapped into it and they still feel a lot of these myths are actually facts, right? Um, so having said that, I'll get into them so that it makes more sense. But um, one of the biggest things, and uh, we'll play it like we did uh, with my cousin there. So... I'll ask the question and I'll have Tim and Will guess whether it's fact or myth. And then you both explain why you guessed so. And then we'll get into the, the real of it. Okay. All right. Uh, I game like games. Okay, great. So um, talking about suicide can plant the idea in someone's head. <laughs> okay for both for myth tim and will both for myth okay and why i well uh you want to talk well or no go ahead timmy i think i think we will both probably say around the same thing but it, it uh 
it actually, if anything, it, it helps because it, it brings that topic forefront and at, at some point it can make them comfortable enough to either talk about it or get distracted and have it not be forefront on their mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's not something that can be planted. Um, and most people who experience ideation already have the ideation and nobody planted that ideation. It just happens to be that it just manifests. And I think that you don't know what to do with it. So I think a lot of people are under this misconception that, Oh my God, if I ask this person, if he's going to hurt himself, he's going to hurt himself. But that's actually, it's, it's the, it's the complete opposite way. It's right. very, it's very, uh, and I got to say, you know, I've asked people a couple of times straight out and the, the looks on people's faces are like, wow, did you, did you sense that? Or did you like, yeah. it's, it's yeah. So no big myth. Okay. <laughs> and you are both correct. Okay. Now I want to say that most people feeling suicidal want to talk about their feelings. It is just that the opportunity sometimes never arises because there's no comfort there's no space for that. Um, and just like you said, Will, there are times where you've straight up said and mentioned suicide to someone. And if they felt that way or they thought about that and some people are taken back because it's not even a word that is out there on the forefront that it's in our usual vocabulary. So people tend to feel as if wait, did he just say suicide? And I say that quietly because a lot of people, you know, that's what we go to. We go to, okay, hush, hush about it. Uh, don't say it. Um, don't talk about it, you know? And that's not, I, I'm, I'm saying in this conversation of the three of us, we all agree that that is not something that we want to bring out to the world. We want to speak about it. Like, just like your podcast, it's about the real conversations, right? So if you're not being real with it, how can you expect others to be real with you? You can't. Exactly. You can't. So if you are the first one to take the step in speaking about suicide, you are taking that and creating that space for another one to step forward and say, yes, I have suicidal thoughts. So that's why it is a myth because if you don't talk about it, it's not going to be talked about. If you aren't going to ask someone if they're suicidal or not, they will never tell you it unless they, you know, feel like they're able to because you've also breached that gap. Um, so I think many, and not to interrupt you, but I think many people are afraid of the answer. And uh, I think a lot of it stems from the fact that we don't have education about this. And then, and, and, and if you don't have obviously the three of us are not the norm, so to speak. You know what I mean? We, we, yeah. this is our thing, but it, it's, I think a lot of people are afraid to ask the question because they don't know how to respond for one thing. But the other one is, Oh my gosh, what happens if he does say it? What am I supposed to do? Am I going to be like, is this going to be, is this my fault? Is it like, so it, it like just, it, it just one, it just cycles around. It really does. It's just like this big vicious cycle of what do I do? I don't know what to do and I don't know what I should do and, and so on and so forth. hundred percent. And I, I agree with you, Will, because um, had my father told me that he was suicidal, 
had my father told me that he was going to take his life that day, I wouldn't know what to do. I, 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 looking back with the education I have now, I would know. But back then, as a 25-year-old, there's no way, no way whatsoever. I would just probably freeze. And I probably didn't ask the right questions as well before he left because I didn't know because I would have been afraid of the answer. And then, then what am I to do? So um, the training and the, the assist and safe talk training um, that's available actually to everybody. Um, I will get into later on about the measures that one can take if they are faced with someone that does share that they are suicidal. So then that way it does equip you and it, it you know, it's information that you're able to take on with you and not be afraid and like literally help save somebody's life. Because uh, just like CPR training is available, this uh, assist training and suicide awareness is, training is available. But if it's, if it's not one that you're um, able to take a class on or, or go ahead and take that training, then there's conversations like this. And I'm, that is, like I shared in the beginning, that is, that is who I am and who I stand for. And that's what I'm going to share with you guys today later on. Good. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, we, we appreciate you being here and sharing with us for yeah. sure, because by doing so, like you said, if some, you know, someone hears it and, you know, someone can connect with that story or, or understand more how they're feeling through your story. I mean, it's a win-win, you know? 100%, 100%. Okay, That's so awesome. let's go on with the, with the game, shall we? Yes, yes, yes. So, um, fact or myth, a suicidal person will always be at risk. Fact. Okay. Why, Will? I, th I think because once you have those thoughts... I think that there's only so far that you can push those thoughts out. I don't think that they ever fully go away. And I know that there's probably people who would argue that, that you can fully recover. And I'm not saying that you can't, but to me, recovery is a day-to-day -day thing and not every day is going to be the same and not every day is going to be good. And I think once you have gone to that place, I think that there's always that door to go to that place again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Tim? Ooh, this, is a, this is kind of a tricky one. Can you read the question one more yeah, time yeah. for me? Sure. Fact or myth, a suicidal person will always be at risk. <sighs> I don't know if I can give a straight answer. I would, I, I, I kind of think that it, it differs depending on the person. I would, I would, I'll say what I think is, is it could be a fact. And, and I think either way, we should kind of treat it that way, just uh, to be on the safe side. Like if you, if, 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 you know, someone close to you in your circle, you know, in your family or a loved one, whatever it may be, has those ideations and you know it, like, I'm not saying to, you know, tread lightly, but I'm just saying to, you know, be a little bit more mindful of it you know, keep a watchful eye when you can, so to speak. I don't know if that really answers it though. I, I that one kind of stumps me a little bit. I'll admit okay. it. Okay. So I guess to help clarify that, um, it is definitely a fact 
And the reason why I say this is because uh, we'll kind of hit it on the head there. When you have your first thoughts of suicide and that is a thought process you're used to, there are times down the road that you may find yourself faced with it again because it's something that you thought of and that you knew existed for you. So um, I'll give you an example for myself. After my father had, had died, um, about a year or so, uh, or a year or two, I was heavy into drugs and alcohol. And I was, um, I would get, you know, plastered. And then my language became, I mean, we, we hear about angry drunks. We hear about, you know, f- funny drunks. We hear about like, you know, all of that. But, and I was a, I want to take my life drunk. And I would say awful things to people. And then I would back it up with, well, I want to go where my father is, or I want to, I want to kill myself, or I would just to the point do drugs and alcohol. So I knew I was going to overdose like, and then I didn't know that that was my process of taking my life, but that's what I was doing. And then when times got really tough or I was triggered about something or I was faced with hard situations, the thought came up again and I wasn't drunk. So it, it's like a, if you're used to going down that thought process, process, like I shared, it is something that doesn't leave you because you know, it existed and you know, you're, you can be comfortable going down that again. So I will share with you that my last suicidal thought was back in October. And that was around my 10, my father's 10 year anniversary. And I shared that with my husband and I shared that with others, but I knew to break that thought process was to share. Um, So I thought I was this person that was, the voice of suicide awareness that I was able to share my story, that it's been 10 years. I'm really, really on this great high. Uh, My life is doing well. And then I, all of a sudden I had that thought again and it was just triggered because of the 10 year anniversary of my father's death. So it was like, I am still at risk because I can still think that way. I could still go back to those thoughts. So whether one is truly healed from, and I quote unquote healed from those thoughts is not something that we could really say is a hundred percent true. Um, but I guess that's why Tim, you were teetering on it because also you had said one can fully be real rehabilitated and know that they may not be able to go down that road again. But um, how can you really truly know that unless you're faced with a situation where you will or could think that way. So I get what you're saying, Tim, and in, in that, but uh, this is also why there's things like this. There's, there's things like expressing oneself and sharing about the thought. So it just becomes a thought and doesn't become action, right? 
Yeah. I think one important uh, thing that you had mentioned in there is uh, kind of how our, our, our brains can be huge douchebags is that they, they often look for patterns and they go back to past experiences to kind of look, you know, uh, to like, look, look for answers, I guess you could say to go, you know, if, if a new situation arises, it automatically will go back to something similar and say, Oh, this is what happened then. So we're going to, you know, which, you know, can be a, be a variable in that for sure. You know? Yeah. Brain, our brains are pattern making machines and we're always looking for the pattern regardless of whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Right. And I, and to speak to, to speak to your uh, alcohol and drug use, I think that, I think in some ways that, we uh, there's people who who do find themselves in addiction patterns as a as a slow suicide in yes. often in ways that it's just easier to become a and I'm not saying I, I shouldn't I, I want to reword what I was about to say because that's not I, I think it's as as we're pattern making machines and we we have a certain comfort level with things that I think that part of the addiction process is, is that in a lot of ways, we're really just looking to end our pain. And a lot of people are hoping not to wake up from an overdose, not necessarily that they want to say that I want to die by suicide, but it's a slow way of dying by suicide. Just like maybe a lot of things, overeating, you know, anything that yeah. can become addictive, I think could be a slow, slow way to die. Yes, for sure. Without actually acknowledging that you want to die. And I, but I also think that that's a good way to just kind of sweep it to the side too, where you don't, it's kind of gives you a chance not to have to express it. Yeah. 100%. I want to acknowledge real quick. Um, one thing that you, you did and, and I, I don't think it's, it's talked about enough is accountability where you said that you had these thoughts and you actually told your husband and I, that's, that's huge. That is like so huge. And just being able to take accountability for that and to sit down and feel comfortable enough and, and say that is, is absolutely huge. So definitely, you know, pat yourself on the back for that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate you acknowledging it too, because there are times where, um, one may feel as if they can't share with their spouse, with their mother, with their father, with their siblings. And those are the closest people around you, right? And some feel like they can't share that. Um, and thankfully enough, my husband was one that was able to, and has always been uh, one that was very honest in his feelings with me. So therefore I mirrored that as well, right? So I was able to be honest and, and forthright with what I was feeling to a T. Um, so it's also who you're able to share with too, right? Because um, one can be fully self-expressed, but if you don't feel safe to do so, and, and that is a huge thing, feeling safe to do so, um, you know, that may be a thought that you carry with you for a while and then all of a sudden we've hear, heard stories where 
people have taken their life out of nowhere and their spouse has no idea at all why and and wasn't privy to signs even afterwards when they were educated of so is because there wasn't a safe space and that's not to uh, discount their spouse it's more so that that wasn't created and if it wasn't created then um, it's no one's fault but it's more so that's why there's things like your podcast and like people like us who are able to share this so that it creates that space. Um, so I, I just wanted to piggyback off that, Tim, of what you just said too, because it takes, you know, the standard takes two to tango, right? Um, so there's, there's a lot of what we're doing that creates that space. So all of us should have a pat on the back about that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, you, yeah thank you. You yeah. also, you also have, uh, is it suicide support and awareness? The page on Instagram? Yes. So it's suicide survival 365 on Instagram. Okay. And that there's strictly of others who share about their suicide experiences real, like on the real uh, it's just 30 minute video clips of some of them who just share what, whatever experience they have gone through and that triggered their suicide ideation and that whether they took an attempt um, and if there was any mental illness background, because a lot of um, suicide uh, cases, people feel as if they did have mental illness and some of them didn't. Um, so creating awareness about that and really down to it, making you see that suicide could happen to anyone, anybody. And that's really what it, what that page is about and being that support. So others can see that they could maybe see themselves and others who share, um, which is, I think a lot of people will feel comfortable and then coming up about their thoughts and uh being able to reach out at that point excellent good for you thank you I, I actually it's what you just mentioned something about it can happen to anyone yeah. and we've obviously seen a lot of high profile mm-hmm. deaths by suicide in, in recent years and um i was recently in uh with my wife and my daughter at kate's a kate spade store yes and i i was actually i and I, I walked in and I kind of started to look around and I, I, the thought had struck me that if, if that can happen to her, it can happen to anyone. And, and we've talked about this a lot. Uh, the death of Chris Cornell affected me a lot, um, yeah. as it did a lot of people my age and our age and stuff that, you know, our music people and stuff. But, but it, it's just it, it, it goes to show that. It doesn't matter. There's no, it, it touches everyone. And that's, that's the point. It touches everyone. And I think the, what is it? The seven, is it the, what is it? The five degrees of Kevin Bacon, that thing that used to be, I think, I think when it comes, I think when it comes to this, I think there's no more than two to three degrees at this point that somebody doesn't know someone or has someone that's affected. Yeah. Right. There, there is, there is studies similar to that, like that whole seven degree thing, you know, as one person, you know, if there was a, a death by suicide, 
that it kind of shows like the outreach. I don't know if that's a proper word, but um, you know, the, how it affects other people and the percentage that it does, you know, how far it goes, mm-hmm. you know, just friends, uh, work, relative kind of thing like that. And it, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. I, Jamie, I have to ask you this because we've been speaking about this and, and part of, part of the reason why I sought relief from this myself and, and realized it a couple of years later was because of the fact that if I took my life, there's a greater chance that my daughter will experience these feelings. My question to you is, did you ever have any of those feelings prior to your dad's death? Were you, did you have any depression? Did you like, was any of that ever something that happened like for you, I'll call it because you said it was the greatest gift that he gave you. But did you experience any any ideation prior to that, or or was it pretty? You know, I'm good. No, I, I never, I never, um, I never thought of taking my life. And and um, we shared this earlier on, and my views on suicide prior to my father taking his life were how could one do that? That's stupid. Life would never get that bad. Um, I even recall a conversation with him that I did share my views on that. And, you know, I beat myself up shortly after I remembered uh, because I thought maybe he wasn't able to share with me because that's what my views were uh, about suicide. Um, but I put that to bed, but I also realized that my language, my words around it affected other people and affected um, any chance of anyone sharing with me even their views on suicide whether they agree or disagree, um, it, it wouldn't matter. It's more so if they had those actual thoughts and were not able to present them because of my judgment. Um, but no, prior to that, I didn't have any thoughts about it at all. Um, and I would get, I guess, angry with my father afterwards, after he took his life that, um, how could you do this? You know, how could you leave us? How could you, um, even around the fact that he did it before four days before my birthday, it was just like a, a blame game. If that makes sense. It was like pointing fingers at him because of what he did. And, um, that view even changed because it got to the point where it was like, why am I, why am I scorning and blaming my father when that is fully his choice? That was fully, <laughs> that was fully what you would be able to do if that's was his train of thought and he shouldn't be, he shouldn't be at all uh, blamed for it. So my views totally changed after that, obviously, because of that degree of separation like directly affected me because I lost my first love towards a man. I lost my best friend. I lost somebody that I looked up to the somebody I even look like, like, 
and then all those ideations just went out the window, right? But um, I didn't have a thought of suicide prior to that, none at all. Uh, and then afterwards, obviously, like we talked about too, it, it spilled over to me, I guess it, the generational curse that we speak of, it spilled over to me. Um, and then I became very quiet about my thoughts until I was drunk or high. And then I was able to share it then. But I mean, it was something that I had to break myself. But yeah. I got to I got to ask this now. What if you I don't know if you is there things that you do or basically I just from talking to you this time, uh, you seem very um, in tune with things, very resilient. Um, you're able to understand and, and kind of move forward. So I guess my question would be, is, is there things that you can kind of um, say worked for you or things that you have, have used like tools or whatever it may be to help you through this process and, and kind of come out, you almost sound come out stronger, I will say. And, you know, um, there were a lot of things that were laid in front of me um, after he passed that were the standards like grief counseling and therapy. Um, and at the time I rejected them in the ways of I would go to, for example, my therapy sessions, and um, it was awful for this, but I would yell at my therapist telling her she didn't know bleep, you know, because I thought if you actually haven't been through what I've been through, who the heck are you to tell me I, how I'm going to heal, right? <laughs> and looking at it now, it's like, oh my God, that's <laughs> so ridiculous. But obviously, a trained professional, I was saying, uh, to her that I knew better, right? Because of my grief of what I was dealing with. So there were ways that I was moving towards um, help in those conventional ways, uh, but I wasn't allowing it to help me because at the time I wasn't ready. And so I made every excuse in the book, even yelling at her to make it not work on me. And then uh, I would seek solace and therapy, quote unquote, in drinking and using drugs and think that that was the thing. And then I kept on going and kept on going. And then I suppressed my emotions, suppressed speaking about it. I didn't even want anyone to know that my father took his life. I didn't want anyone to pity me. Um, and I kept going on that way. And I realized what I was doing, I was just being like my father and not sharing in that way, not sharing fully self-expressed. And that's when things like uh, bereavement therapy, uh, therapy, um, even courses taking on self-development uh, in diving into the assist and safe training to learn about suicide when I did, I was scared 
shitless, frankly, sorry, but I was scared shitless to do it. But it was like the things that made me come out on this end were the things that made me truly uncomfortable. And I allowed myself to be uncomfortable. Um, and I think that that second part of allowing yourself to be uncomfortable is very much key to being in an uncomfortable situation because I wasn't in, was in an uncomfortable situation when it came to therapy, but I still was pulling out guns and darts and saying, no, 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 no. But I put myself in that situation, but it was allowing myself to really truly be uncomfortable was when it was like the walls came down, everything came down. And it was like pour into Jamie's cup about all these things that are now going to help her heal was when that came. So it was like a mixture of detoxing, rehabilitating the way I thought about drugs and, and drinking, um, seeking help about that. Um, and then also taking self-development courses, going to therapy, going through group therapy. And I just rapidly did it all one by one and felt uncomfortable throughout the whole time. But that's when I knew, okay, this is, there's an end goal and I don't know what it looks like, but I'm going to do it because I can't, I couldn't live like that any longer. Um, so in, I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Because, no, it, it, it does yeah. above and beyond. I, it, okay. It's awesome. I love it. It's taking accountability, uh, you know, yeah. educating yourself. You know, I think you have a uh, pretty great insight on things and, um, you know, and, and you, you kind of, you mentioned, uh, you know, a little Joseph Campbell in there about going into <laughs> that, that scary cave. And, yeah. you know, th that's, we talk about this stuff a lot is, you know, getting uncomfortable, you know, cause if you, if you stay in that comfy space, you, you know, that's it's where, unfortunately you're going to stay that you're going to, no growth. There's no growth. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so yeah. you answered it perfectly. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Good, good. <laughs> awesome. Wow. That was heavy. I got I do have to ask you this. Are now, are you sober? So, or did I, you just have to like change your whole relationship with everything <laughs> and just so, like sort of accept, you know, well, Hey, you know, it's just, I can't do it for this reason or I can't do it for that reason. It's gotta be, you know, well, what I discovered was um, the answer is, is no, I'm not sober. Okay. And what the extent of that looks like is I don't do drugs, but I do drink. I would say the last drink I had was maybe three months ago. Like that, like, because I, I, I that's why I say I'm not sober because I, I will drink, but I will, will not drink into the excess that I did because now I, I can distinguish when I'm drinking, I'm drinking with a, a meal at night or something like that. Whereas responsibly, yes. When I would drink before it would be to escape. Um, so that's why I, I was able to come to that, but I know that doing drugs would make me go back into that cave and, and, and spot again. And then, I wouldn't be able to come out of it. And that I know. And because I know that I don't do drugs. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of insight and that's, <laughs> that's huge. 
It's just a little trial and error there, but <laughs> well, <laughs> I, you know that's what that's what life's about, trial right. and error. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm still, you know, I, I, I am not sober, mm-hmm. but I, I, and I still know that I have like there's certain parts of my personality that are affected by substances, and right. I, and and you know, as and I will say this, I fully believe that like cannabis should be legal for everybody that's over the age of whatever. However, I also know that it comes with not everybody can handle it right? and, and it becomes a crutch and it, it like there's there's a certain balance of, you know, substance versus non-substance and stuff. But, but I, I just had to ask because I, you know, some people really have to just stay away and, yes. and not not go there again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um. I was going to say, do you want to take on a little more um, facts and myths or would you like to move on to, well, I mean, whichever, where you want to go. If you want to, why don't we do one more fact versus myth and then we'll, uh, then we'll go into uh, our three questions. Okay, great. Um, Okay, this is a good one. Suicide occurs more during the holidays. Fact or myth? I'll let Timmy take this one. We actually did an episode about this. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, great. Put, put me on the spot. I don't remember the episode. Um, <laughs> off the top of my head, I, I'm, I'm going to say, yeah, it probably does. Fact. Okay. All right. I, I actually was under the guise. I always thought that it did. And then as I got down the rabbit hole and did some research, I realized that that's just some fabrication that, the media and, and people have, have passed around each other, you know, like a really bad joint. It's just like, it's just not, it's just, it is, I, there, you know, it was, I thought it was a good metaphor considering we're talking about sobriety. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I honestly thought that it did. And then when I started to, when we did the episode at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, I, cause I, I thought that suicide was did raise up during that time, but actually they say it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, so it's more I'm of a go it's with mo- myth. It's more, it's more of a it's it's a myth. So it's more of a correlation thing than a causation thing. Yes. So it definitely is a myth. And Damn. I want to share that most people think suicide is a selfish act, but most people who want to end their life think they are a burden to the loved ones. So they will try to stay around during the holidays so that they could leave their loved ones with a memory or I had Christmas with them. I had this and that. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to put that fact and myth in there because I wanted to touch on suicide being a selfish act. Now, a lot of people uh, have the misconception of that because even in our language with others. And when some people have shared about suicide, sometimes the responses are, do you know how selfish that is? What do you think your mom would think? What about your family? What about your loved ones? Right. And I mean, I could see in Tim's face guys, Tim's shaking his head because he, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate that so much. I hate it. It's, It's such a trigger, right? Because it's one of those things where if you really dove down deep into it the people who want to take their lives mostly I'll say mostly 
are ones that they are feeling as a burden to themselves and others. Exactly. Not that it is, well, I want to selfishly take my life. It is, they will try to hold out as long as they could for others until they succumb to whatever they choose. Right. But it's, it is not a selfish act. It really isn't. And it, if you look at it, it's, it's truly, I remember somebody had told me when I shared about my father, they had asked me if I ever thought my father was brave. And I was like, you know, yeah, my father was brave growing up, whatever. And he didn't really share about his feelings though. And he had came back and said, but do you think he's brave for what he did? And I had to really sit there like brave about taking his life. He was like, yeah, brave about taking his life. And I thought, you know, holy crap, like that was probably one of the hardest things to do. The hardest, hardest thing to do. I mean, we are hardwired if we have a cut on our finger. We, we hold our finger where that cut is because we don't want that pain. We don't want it to hurt. And to actively hurt oneself till completion that's what he asked, do you think your father was brave about? And I right there broke out down to tears because how many of us can actually do such a thing? And I mean, that isn't to glorify suicide. It's to say, did you ever think about it in a different light where your father took his own life to the, to the extreme of his bravery to do so? So I looked at it completely differently as well, right? Because it was like, that's not a selfish act. 100% it isn't, right? So um, that's why I wanted to touch on that for the fact and myth part of it, because. No, thank you for that. Cause that, that's huge. And I, I, yeah. you know, I, I, I fully agree with it, but it's, it's, it's so huge. Like you said, it, I feel like it almost, you know, puts more burden on it. It creates more stigma saying that, 100%, you know, a hundred percent. And, and it's, it's that classic. Are you living for you? Or are you living for others? in that way, your life. I mean, you, we live our lives, all three of us in the service of many others, but are we living for us? Are we living for our spouse? Are we living for our children? Are we, li- we're, we're not, we like, I think that that's what's harder because it kind of slaps somebody in the face about it. Um, about and that I think, way of thinking. And it, I think slapping somebody in the face makes them think a little bit more. We but, love face slapping here at the podcast. And that has come up uh, a few times in conversations that I've had about about bravery. And I know that in certain cultures, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there are certain cultures that that do look at that as a brave act in in certain ways. Yes. Not that we're that's not what we're going to talk about. But I I just know that it really does depend culturally where you come from and what you've been indoctrinated with and and what you you know what you've learned and what you believe about it yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. wow that's wow, that's exactly. heavy man that was that was that's heavy <laughs> that's heavy so jamie we appreciate so much you being here this morning it's been awesome talking to you oh uh, i'm we, enjoying it it's great um we're gonna i'd love to have you back at some point i would love it i would love to but for this one, we finish up every episode with three questions. 
Yeah. And two of them are, one of them is not so serious, but some people take it very seriously. And then the other two are, are more serious, but I'll let Tim ask the first one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you have a favorite or least favorite word? Okay. I'm going to speak on, um, on, it's going to, it's going to teeter on both. Okay. Yeah. Whatever you, whatever you got. So I'm going to bring it back to suicide and I want to share with all of you that are listening and with Will and Tim and myself, you'll notice in this interview or this podcast, this conversation that all of us used correctly died by suicide or you could even use suicided, right? Yep. And I am for that language. And that is the language I push forth because I detest committed suicide. That, that makes your brain think of committed as an act of it being illegal, being wrong. Uh, you know, there are people who commit murder and there's a correlation with that. And in changing, or I shouldn't even say change, transforming the language to died by suicide, suicided, take one's life. Like those are things in those wordings allow one to be more open to communication and having one understand that it is not a illegal crime act and a negative act in that aspect. Um, well said, so well said. We want to make sure that that's said out there, right? Because our, our absolutely how we speak, right? And yes. we, we want to impress upon others to speak of the same language. Um, so yeah, there's your answer. And it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing how many people still use that. I mean, I, I, I yeah. must've heard it. I, I don't know how many times I've heard it in the media and, and stuff. And, and yeah. everything and and we I I and I never thought about it until I started to do my volunteer stuff and and become part of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I didn't realize that the language and then it really made me think about language entirely. 100%. And it's amazing like language, what language does peacemaker versus peacekeeper. Like there's a different like there's a different connotation in that. And it's just like you don't realize it. And then like Marshall Rosen. Marshall Rosenberg, I think, um, the nonviolent communication mm -hmm. is like huge, like was a huge influence on me starting to think about the way I, I spoke about certain things wow. because you, because you can really be like words really do carry a lot of weight. hundred percent. hundred percent. And, and what about a favorite word? The uh, no, the favorite word is the, the language of, of, Right. Okay. Died by suicide or okay. suicided. I, I, and I want to say favor that in that way, because I am, I'm happy that that's the form of communication. Right. I, I think that that's so great. And, and, you know, creating that awareness and being able to share it in this light and then, you know, correcting others as you hear it. Right. Or acknowledging, thank you for saying it that way. Right. Um, that's why it's a favorite. <laughs> ah, awesome. 
So I have to ask, this is my question. Uh, Tim seems to get the serious questions, but me, I'm a joker. <laughs> and this is not a joke though, because this is honest, because most people, you know, really, you know, cat, dog, or other. <laughs> okay, so definitely dog. Okay. And I will share with you that I I had a dog. He was it was a little um, Maltese, and uh, amazing companion, great. And uh, I wanted to share with you since Will, I know that you're a music lover. Well, you're both are. I we both say, are. Yeah. But I I know that that's that's something I know that Will because you asked this question. Um, I named him Prince Rose. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> One, for Prince, obviously. Yeah. And two, for Guns N' Roses. So <laughs> yeah, I love it. Rose. That's awesome. And, um, yeah, just I, I'm a huge music fan and as well. And, and uh, what better yet to name my dog than after great a great band and a great musician, right? <laughs> of course. Absolutely. I love the fact that you, you know, combined Prince and Guns N' Roses, though. Because there's yeah, people right? that probably love Prince that would be like, Guns N' Roses, what? <laughs> it's true. Like, when I would walk my dog and people would ask me, what's his name? And they would say, you know, why would, why? Why would you even? I was like, hey, like, I love all kinds of music. I think that that was the best Mash up to do, right? <laughs> it's good. It's yeah. a good one. All right. So the last question is, if there was something that you could do or you would like to see done for mental health as a whole without any kind of restraint, mm -hmm. what would it be? Um, I like that question, uh, especially when you say not kind of, there's no restraint. Yeah. Um, yeah, no resource restraint whatsoever. What would you do? Yeah, it would, it would be having, uh, education available on topics like mental illness, suicide awareness, abuse, um, you know, all of those things that people come through traumatic experiences for, um, educated in our schooling systems. Yes. Where that's available as young as, you know, four or five, where kids are taught what suicide is, the word suicide, what abuse is, what abuse means, because then they are able to distinguish it, acknowledge it, share about it, communicate about it, and then therefore have a lot of preventative measures when it comes to if they are faced with such a situation. Um, so that would be the ultimate thing. Yes. You're, yeah. speaking, you're speaking Tim's language. Jamie, awesome. thank you so much for being here. It's been awesome talking to you and it's a pleasure meeting you. It's awesome. Yeah. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. Great, great time. Well, uh, we're going to wrap this one up this week. Um, I think talking with uh, Jamie she uh, really got to the heart of the matter on some of these things. Um, so on that note, we hope uh, you guys all enjoyed this. And if you all did like it, you can always, if you're listening on Apple, you can subscribe, uh, leave us a review. You can find us on Spotify at above ground podcast on Instagram. Yeah. All our Google friends. I shared the link to the Google 
podcast the other day on the Facebook page. Also, um, please leave a review, scribe script, and uh, share share with your friends. And if if and if you're so inclined, you know, shoot us a line just to say that you're listening. So until next week, be well, be safe, be. Saturday, June 5th, it's Refurbicon 2021, noon to 7 p.m. Fun for the whole family. All ages are welcome. Check out this awesome outdoor and indoor event. It's all sponsored by Collar City Concrete, Cool River Pools, LLC, Corpse FX, Special Effects Makeup, Collar City Painting, LLC. Into the great outdoors with some live music from Joe Mansman and the Midnight Revival Band. The Peter Anello Trio and Vombino. Wrestlers. Artists. Vendors. Food. Drinks. Summer fun. Reverbicon 2021. Broken Root Barbecue. 1544 State Route 40. Scattercoke, New York. Saturday, June 5th, noon to 7 p.m. With an after party with Brian Kane. Come hang out with Capital Underground on Nippertown and that buzzing 518. Show. You've waited, now it's here, and it's free to the public. Reverbicon 2021, Saturday, June 5th at Broken Road Barbecue and Bar, Scantico. Check in with the AboveGroundPodcast.net. For more information, go to Reverbicon on Facebook.